Job 14. Man, who is born of woman, is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. You also open your eyes on him and bring him into judgment with yourself. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. Turn your gaze from him that he may rest until he fulfills his day like a hired man. For there is hope for a tree when it is cut, cut down that it will sprout again, and its shoots will not fail. Though its roots grow old in the ground and its stump dies in the dry soil, dry soil at the scent of water it will flourish and bring, put forth sprigs like a plant. But man dies and lies prostrate. Man expires and where is he? As water evaporates from the sea and a river becomes parched and dried up, so a man lies down and does not rise. Until the heavens are no longer, he will not awake nor be aroused out of his sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath returns to you, that you would set a limit for me and remember me. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle, I will wait until cha my change comes. You will call, and I will answer you. You will long for the work of your hands. For now, you number my steps. You do not observe my sin. My transgression is sealed up in a bag, and you wrap my, up my iniquity. But the falling mountain crumbles away, and the rock moves from its place. Water wears away stones, its torrents wash away the dust of the earth. So you destroy man's hope. You forever overpower him, and he departs. You change his appearance and send him away. His sons achieve honor, but he does not know it. Or they become insignificant, but he does not perceive it. But his body pains him, and he mourns only for himself. This is the word of the Lord for us today. We're going to dismiss the youth right now. And as they go down, we just want to pray a blessing over them. We're going to dismiss uh, capital kids. I'm sorry, youth have already, uh, youth are at camp right now. But we can also pray a blessing over the youth as they're at camp. Lord God, as we dismiss the, youth, the kids, <laughs> as we dismiss capital kids, Father, we just, Lord, we pray a blessing over them, God. Lord, we pray that you speak to our children, God. Lord, that you would uh, already just be touching their hearts or drawing them to you, God. And Lord, we do. We pray over the youth today, Lord, as they're at camp. Lord, we pray that you would bless them richly. Lord, that they would come back transformed. Lord, they would come back having heard from you, God. Lord, that the, these counselors, Lord, the adults, Lord, that are going with them, that are speaking at this place, Lord, that our youth would just be impacted by people following after you, God. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that we as a body would just be an example, Lord, of what it's like to live a life submitted to you, God. Lord, bless the children. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Good morning. My name is.
Chris Gertner, my wife Leah and I, we have lived in China for 16 years now, and pictured there with us are our three kids, Austin, Bennett, and Lucy, and uh, Lord willing, it's soon going to be four kids in our family as we have an adoption uh, that's in process. Uh, I currently work for a media company here in Beijing, and uh, I just want to start off by saying how much I love the book of Job. Why do I love it so much? I think because it's full of things that I find myself wanting to say, but maybe I'm afraid to say, or I'm afraid to pray, and maybe you've found that too. And this particular passage, Job 14, offered me hope and, and actually an outlet for my emotions during a very dark period of my life. Now, the book of Job is wisdom literature. Uh, the Bible has lots of different genres. It has history, it has gospels, it, it has letters. Wisdom literature is very, very poetic. It, it explores how do we live what life in a, in a wise way. And these wisdom books, they're not always easy to, to logically build our doctrines off of. For example, in contrast to Paul's letters, um, but if we open our hearts, if we let down our guard, they really can speak to us, and they have spoken to me. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the book of Job, a basic synopsis here, um, Job, a man long, long time ago, this was before the nation of Israel existed, but this man was a worshiper of God, a very good man, a righteous man. Um, he was wealthy, he was righteous and blameless. Now, he was not sinless, and yet he had no glaring wickedness in his life. And then the scene cuts to the heavenly realms where you have God talking with Satan, and God says, have you considered my servant Job? Look at him, how he serves me. And Satan says, ha, that's just because you've given him all this stuff. Let me take away the stuff and he'll curse you to your face. And so God allows Satan to attack Job and everything that's his, including his children, are taken away. And Satan says, oh, big deal, because Job kept his faith in God. Satan says, let me attack his health, and he'll curse you to your face. And so God allows him to attack his health. Now Job passes the test, keeps his faith in God, uh, and at the end, God restores Job uh, to even greater wealth uh, than he had before. He also comforts him with, with more children in his family. Now, I cannot help but feel the tension in Job's response to his suffering. We see different aspects of it. Now, at first, it's the kind of response you might expect from someone in a religious book, uh, the kind of response that's trying to be a good example for us. In chapter 1, Job said, The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. Blessed be the name of the Lord, like we sang this morning. And it says, Job did not sin by accusing God of wrongdoing. And yet, we read on in the book of Job, what does Job say? Job curses the day of his birth. 
he asked God, is it right for you indeed to oppress? He says, but I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to argue with God. Chapter 19, verse 6, he says, Know then that God has wronged me and has closed his net around me. Chapter 30, he says, You have become cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. Things we may often, or at least sometimes in life, want to say, but are afraid to pray. Maybe the theme of the book of Job can be found in chapter 28. Job asks, where can wisdom be found? In other words, how can I see reality for what it is and then live accordingly? Job, he describes wisdom's value surpassing anything precious. Job describes what we would call the natural laws of the universe that declare God's wisdom displayed in the creation around us. And Job says, and to man... God said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Now, it seems that Job got this. Even before later, as God confronts him about a few things, Job got it. Okay, God is in charge, and we need to seek wisdom from him. And this, this idea of the fear of the Lord, that sounds a lot like another wisdom book in the Bible, the book of Proverbs. Now, many people are much more comfortable with Proverbs than they are with Job. Proverbs is full of general truths about, it's full of metaphors about what is the wise person like versus what is the foolish person like. What is the hard-working person like versus the lazy person. And how generally it goes well for the wise. It goes well for the hard-working. But what about Job? He had all these positive characteristics. He was generous. He was chaste. He stood up for the poor. He worshiped God only. But as far as we know, Job was never told of the challenge in heaven that led to his testing. God never told him the why of his suffering. But the Lord does show up and respond to Job. And we see such a tension in his responses. Starting in chapter 38, on the one hand, God says to Job, Who do you think you are? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy? He challenges them, Gird up your loins like a man. Why don't you teach me? Have you commanded the morning? Have you walked in the recesses of the deep? Did you fix the constellations? Can you cover the earth with rain? Did you make or can you care for all the wild animals of the earth? And Job, he's left in empty-handed silence. Yet, on the other hand, God rebukes Job's friends. Why? Because they haven't spoken rightly of him as his servant Job has. Job's three friends, now they started out well. When they came, they heard of Job's affliction. And they sat with him for seven days, saying nothing, just being with him. Now when they finally opened their mouths, they said a lot of things uh, that are actually quite true. 
Like God is for good and against evil. God punishes wrongdoing. They question, who is a man like Job to contend with the Almighty? But where they went wrong was saying to Job that you must have done something wrong. You must have some sin in your life that has brought this evil upon you. So you need to repent. You need to make this right. And then things will go right for you again. So right before our focus chapter today, chapter 14, Job has already had enough of this, enough of his friends. He says to his friends, Oh, that you would become completely silent. He tells them to stop speaking in Proverbs of Ashes. Well, the book of Job is about 30 chapters of this arguing back and forth with Job and his friends until God shows up. God was so displeased with Job's friends and what they said of him that he required Job to go and make sacrifice for their sins in this very thing. And yet, with all this arguing from Job to God, there's no mention of Job sinning. No need to make sacrifice for the things he said. Now, let's zero in on chapter 14, try to make some sense of what's going on here. But before we do, when people you know are suffering, what's your response? Is it to sit with them, to be with them, to suffer with them? Or is it to just drop your two cents of your Proverbs of Ashes? Chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, we can look at as Job. He mentions a bit of life's beauty, but much more so its brevity and its bleakness. Verse 1, man is born of woman. Being born of a woman. This is an expression of something common to all mankind. It recalls the great statement of Job in chapter 1. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. We're helpless at birth. And at death, we can't take anything with us, no matter who you are. We arrive in this world with equal dignity as bearers of the image of God, but also with equal helplessness. Job compares man to a flower. Now, a flower is something beautiful. It's functional, but it's also beautiful. And it's often a sign of something more to come. The flowers, they come in spring. We have fruit in the summer or the fall. But Job's focus is that we are that flower. Here today, gone tomorrow. The prophet Isaiah and the apostle Peter agree. All flesh is like the grass. The grass, grass withers and fades away. The glory of man is like a flower that shrivels in the sun and falls but the word of the Lord endures forever. Man flees like a shadow. In, in chapter 26, verse 5, Job, he's pondering death, and he speaks of people's departed spirits. Now that word in Hebrew, rephaim, it literally means shades. Job envisions existence after death as something shadowy. Now I'm approaching 40, actually in about six weeks. Um, I'm sensing the flower of my youth fading, the brevity of life. Uh, and I found perhaps I've never been quite so disciplined as recently as far as exercising, watching my diet. In fact, in, fact, in the last three years, I've lost about 30 pounds or 14 kilos. Um, 
Now, that may stave off some of the effects of aging for a while, but it's coming, no matter how disciplined I am. And I've also started to be hit with the reality that the choices I've made in life and the direction in my life is much more and more undoable compared to what it was in my 20s. Uh, the skills I've chosen to develop, the kind of work I'm able to do, the people I'm connected with and, and share life with. Old habits die hard and life is fleeing away. Now, according to Job, not only is life brief, but it's also bleak because it's also full of trouble or turmoil. The Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures uh, use the word that literally means wrath. Life is full of wrath, full, few and full of wrath. We often experience wrath, this is kind of a two-way street. One, wrath coming from ourselves in response to the world around us. Because things aren't as they should be, or at least not the way we want them. Wrath is this gut-level response that rages against our reality. So while this wrath is coming from ourselves, that's one thing, what people are often unaware of is wrath coming to themselves. God is much more emotionally aware of the world and that things aren't the way it should be. He's much more aware that things aren't the way with me that they should be or the way with you that they should be. And it twists him up inside because he is love. And his world is not yet full of love, and God cannot just stand idly by and see that. Things are brought into judgment. And Job realizes that this looks bleak. He speaks of uncleanliness. Now, in the Old Testament, there were rules about what you needed to do if you wanted to worship God, outward ritual cleanliness, what you could and couldn't eat, how to prepare it, ritual washings, what to wear, all this if you wanted to worship God. Now, this was signifying the need for a moral cleanliness, cleanliness of heart. The problem is, I can't make myself clean. Neither can you. Job and his friends, at least, could agree upon that. So in light of life's beauty, brevity, and bleakness, in verses 5 through 13, Job has a couple of suggested solutions. The first, turn away from me, God. He says our days are numbered. So God, if you just turn away, let me put in my time and I'll be done with it. Have you ever lived life or at least lived some aspect of your life with a punch-the-clock mentality? And what I mean by punching the clock is, at least in the old days, as people went to work in an office or factory, they had a time card, and they'd show up and punch it in. It stamps the time on there. And then while they were at work, whatever the boss said, that's what they had to do. But once they punched out, they were done. The boss no longer had any claim over them. And that's how Job was viewing life. Let me put in my time, and then you can be done with me. Now, Ecclesiastes, another wisdom book in the Bible, says the sleep of the laborer is sweet. The labor, laborer, he's in and out. He doesn't have any impending business deals to fret over. No worry about will he make a profit. His conscience isn't stricken over shady business deals. 
He put in his time with honest sweat, and he got his reward. Now he's done. When I was younger, I began to resent how the reality of God was starting to make me worry about the bigger picture in life. See, I had my own dreams to pursue. I wanted fame. I wanted adoration. I wanted women to fawn over me. I wanted to go to heaven when I died, but I really wanted to keep God at arm's length, or maybe even farther throughout my days. So are you punching the clock? Are you thinking, just leave me alone for a while, God? I've been there, and I think maybe many of you have too. You're not alone. Job's second suggested solution, get me out of here. Verse 13, Job is looking for an escape from God's wrath. Things are not the way they should be on this earth, and Job knows it. God knows it. So Job says, God, you can keep doing your thing. Just let me get out of the way. Job sees death as an escape from that. I've been there too, wanting to get away from the whole thing. And this is not just before I was a Christian. And if you have felt that, or you're feeling that, you're not alone. And don't stay alone. Bring other people beside you. Job, he contrasts himself and all humans with a tree. A tree can be cut down and live again. Water brings forth new life from it. Now, as for humankind, Job, Job pictures us lying dead with no water to bring us back. It's just dried up lakes and rivers. So let's put in our time, God, leave me alone until I'm gone. But then in verse 14, what do we see? This little ray of hope, a trickle of water even. If a man dies, shall he live again? Job at least has gone from a nope to a well. Could this be? Dare Job believe that there's more than this? The English poet and novelist Thomas Hardy, he wrote a poem called The Darkling Thrush. And thrush is a little, a little bird. He wrote it on uh, New Year's Eve of 1900. So it was the death of a century. It was a century that had many people putting their hope in human progress through technology or, for, or through reforms. And this poem really echoes Job's wrestling between life and death, between despair and hope. The poem reads... I leant upon a coppice gate when frost was specter gray, and winter's dregs made desolate the weakening eye of day. The tangled bind stems scored the sky like strings of broken lyres, and all mankind that haunted nigh had sought their household fires. The land's sharp features seemed to be the century's corpse outlent. His crypt, the cloudy canopy, the wind, his death lament. The ancient pulse of germ and birth was shrunken hard and dry, and every spirit upon earth seemed fervorless as I. At once, a voice arose among the bleak twigs overhead, in a full-hearted even song of joy illimited, an aged thrush, frail, gaunt, and small, in blast beruffled plume, had chosen thus to fling his soul upon the growing gloom. 
So little cause for carolings of such ecstatic sound was written on terrestrial things afar or nigh around that I could think there trembled through his happy goodnight air some blessed hope whereof he knew and I was unaware. In verse 14, Job says, All the days of my struggle I will wait until my change comes. The ESV says this struggle, it says all the days of my service. Again, this idea of putting in labor like a hired hand. In this brief life of labor as a hired hand, Job is starting to move away from this punch-the-clock mentality to waiting for a change, to becoming again for a renewal, for a transformation. At least we see a hint, a shift away from Job's suggestions to a work of God. Third section is God's work, a call and an answer. Verse 15, you will call and I will answer you. You will long for the work of your hands. God would long for Job. God would long for me, for you. You know, God does not need us. He did not create us out of some lack because he was lonely. God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from eternity past in love with one another. And yet he created us as an outpour of this love. He doesn't need us, and yet somehow he's made it that he longs for us. So if you're a Christian, do you picture God as accepting you with kind of with clenched teeth? Like, all right, Eric, come on in, but don't touch anything. (laughs) It's not that way. It's not just acceptance, but it's intimate knowledge. It's numbering steps. Psalm 139 says, Lord, you know my getting up and my lying down. You perceive my thoughts from afar. Jesus said to his disciples, the hairs on your head are numbered. Verse 17, Job says, my transgression is sealed up in a bag and you wrap up my iniquity. Job knew that to have this kind of intimate experience of God, sin had to be dealt with. This wrapping up of sin literally is like a plastering, a gluing together, sealing up. Now, this is not sweeping things under the rug because those eventually come out again, especially in our age of social media. But we need sin removed as far as, as, far as the east is from the west. So how are sins sealed up? Well, J.R.R. Tolkien Uh, He's best known as as the author of The Lord of the Rings. Now, ten years before this book's publication, in a lecture as a scholar of Anglo-Saxon language and literature, Tolkien gave a lecture called uh, On Fairy Stories. And in it, he discussed what is it about stories that stir us so much, that can even have the power to change us. He talked about how in stories, as well as in life, we experience catastrophe especially in tragedies, right? It sounds a lot like what Job says in verse 18 and 19, but the falling mountain crumbles away and the rock moves from its place. Water wears away stones. Its torrents wash away the dust of the earth. So you destroy man's hope. 
catastrophe, when everything falls apart. It did for Job. Maybe you feel like it is for you. Everything moves, everything breaks. It's one of the most valuable sayings I've learned from Pastor Rick during my time at Capitol. But why do I often so act surprised that everything moves, everything breaks? Now, like a good linguist, Tolkien, he loved to play with words. He even made up some of his own. So he took this word in the middle there, catastrophe, with its Greek origins, and he combined a new Greek-rooted prefix with it, E-U, meaning good. And he made a new word, eucatastrophe. And he defined it as the sudden joyous turn. Tolkien said that's what fairy stories have that move us so much. The glass slipper fits Cinderella. Belle's love rescues the dying beast from his curse. Anna gives up her life for Elsa, the act of true love that breaks the frozen spell. Tolkien also said that human history and all its brokenness has experienced eucatastrophe in the birth of Jesus Christ. Jesus, born of a woman, the Virgin Mary. A sudden joyous turn that actually happened. Everything changed. Tolkien also said that Jesus' own life had its own eucatastrophe. You see, Jesus died. And he didn't die just by accident or even just because the people who rejected his love killed him. No, he died so that we could be clean, like Job and his friends wondered how that could ever happen. He died to take on God's wrath so that it could pass over us. He died so that the great divide could be bridged, so that the one who is so great and powerful and feared, we can now call Daddy. Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. Jesus' own eucatastrophe, Tolkien said, was his resurrection. It was Jesus' resurrection that answered Job's question with a yes. If a man dies, he can live again. In many churches every week in their worship service, they'll recite the Apostles' Creed. It's a basic statement that unites Christians everywhere. And one of the articles is that, in that statement is, I believe in the resurrection of the body. That refers to Jesus' bodily resurrection, but also to ours. That one day, too, we will be raised. That is our hope. Not just that our souls can go to heaven after we die, but resurrection. That's the water that through the Holy Spirit brings life from all of us fallen trees. That's life from the dead. Now, Job, he experienced eucatastrophe in life, right? God restored him, restored his possessions, restored his family. Jesus, however, did not. He died, but he was raised again. And so we might not experience this sudden joyous turn in this life, but our hope, our forever hope, is resurrection. And that's the turn for good that waits for us if we trust in Jesus. For those who trust in Jesus, the old has gone, the new has come. We drink from new and living water. We're born of water and the Spirit. You can't make yourself clean by yourself. You can't seal up your own sins in a bag. 
You can't even get rid of your ingrained character by yourself. You need Jesus to do it. It hurts. It hurts for a while, but it's worth it. Verse 19, Job says, you destroy man's hope. You overpower him. Why? Why does God do this? It's because we put our hope in everything but God. God digs into our idols to dig them out of us. You think about Job's hope. Why does he talk about um, sons coming to honor and, and we don't know about it? And so what, what, what hope is that? You see so many times in the Bible, God digging into these Bible characters, into what it was they were trusting in and, and taking it away from them. Whether that's Abraham and his own hope in having a son that he could arrange for to be his heir. Or Jacob, his own hope and his ability to manipulate people. God takes that away. Now, when I went through a, a very, very dark time a number of years ago, and uh, I couldn't really do a whole lot for myself at that time. Um, and Leah, my wife, she was reading to me a portion of C.S. Lewis's story, uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, one of the Narnia books. And at the time, I at least could feel that that maybe something great and deep was going on, something even greater and deeper than my own pain or despair. In the story, there was a boy named Eustace, and Eustace, he thought really highly of himself um, and very lowly of everyone else. And, and through his own resentment of others, through his own desire for power and privilege, he turned into a dragon. Now, at the time, he was wearing this uh, bracelet from another a dragon's treasure hoard. And as he grew into a dragon, well, this gold bracelet was really hurting his arm. He did not want to be a dragon anymore. Uh, he wanted a chance to, to ease his pain. And that's when he met Aslan, the lion, who told him that to ease his pain, he must go bathe in a well. But he must undress first. So Edmund, in this portion I'm about to read, is, is talking to his, uh, I'm sorry, Eustace is talking to his now friend Edmund about what happened. I was going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when suddenly I thought dragons are snaky sort of things and snakes can cast their skins off. Oh, of course I thought that's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place, and then I scratched a little deeper. And instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, just like it does after an illness or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling, so I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Oh, that's all right, I said. It only means I had another smaller suit underneath the first one, and I'll have to get, it out, get out of it too. So I scratched and tore, and this underskin peeled off beautifully, and out I stepped and left it lying beside the other one and went down to the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. 
And I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe my leg. So I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin, just like the two others, and stepped out of it. But as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, no, I don't know if it spoke. You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever plucked the scab off of a sore place, it hurts like bilio, but it is such fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I'd turn into a boy again. In this brief and bleak life, we don't need to just put in our time. We don't need to escape. We need a new creation. Job saw hints of this. And we see it much more clearly in Jesus Christ and what he can do in our lives and in our death. We don't see now as clearly as we one day will. The Apostle John wrote, one day we will be like him for we will see him as he truly is. And in the meantime, talk to him. Wherever you are in your pain or in your loss, don't be afraid to tell him. He may remind you of his great and mighty power that rules over all things. He may also remind you that he gave up everything. He gave up everything for you and died because he longs for you. May we say in Job, say like Job in verse 10, chapter 10, verse 15, though he may slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are great and mighty. You are beyond us, and we, we have no right to argue. You are great, we are small. And yet, Father, you welcome us to pour out our hearts before you. 
Please help us do that. Help us remember Jesus who gave up everything for us, who lost so much more than even Job did, and invites us into that great inheritance with him. Thank you for his eucatastrophe, his resurrection that you invite us to, Jesus. Wherever we are, Lord, please help us to trust in you and be near to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.